A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Team Human is an ad-free, community-supported project. It's made possible by the generous support of teammates, including Joel Jacobson, Ray Zilke, Daniel Reuter, and Nikita Sidorov. You can join the team, too, by going to teamhuman.fm and clicking on support. When you support Team Human, you'll gain access to our Discord community, where you can interact with other supporters of the show, join our audio salons, unlock the Team Human team feed, featuring exclusive bonus content from the Rushkoff archive, and more benefits, including digital copies of my books. Thank you for your support. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine. This is where we beat the odds, challenge probability, and assert the sacred anomaly that gave rise to thinking bipeds in the first place. The fact that we're even here defies all statistical logic, so let's not worry about our chances moving forward. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, journalist, founder of Dot 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 Media, and investigator of the weird, as well as author of the brand new book, Special Characters, My Adventures with Tech Titans and Misfits, Lori Siegel. Tech is humanity. Like, we are one and the same. Like, it shapes every part of us, and, and we shape technology. And so, you know, for us to not understand that is for us to not to not really be doing our jobs right. And for people who are creating technology to not understand that, it's for them to not be doing their jobs right. Lori's going to tell us what it's like to interview people like Mark Zuckerberg and why she holds out faith that their humanity may still rule the day. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. Well, I hope you're all doing okay. I know we have listeners in Ukraine and Russia and Poland. And to all of you, especially, I want you to know that Team Human is here, if nothing else, bearing witness to what you're going through. I'm not a Ukraine-Russia expert. (laughs) I'm not going to say I have a take on what's happening. It's funny, everyone's supposed to have a take on everything, right? I remember just a few mornings ago when uh, I guess when the real 
war part started, uh, Jenny Hardeen, she tweeted, uh, good morning, newly minted Ukraine experts, as a way of saying, okay, here it comes. Everybody's going to have going to have their take, like everyone had their take on the uh, Biden Afghanistan withdrawal strategy. Now, everyone instantly understands uh, Russia and the Soviets and the various former Russian states and Soviet states and republics and how that all works and who's really there and what the Zs mean on the on the uh, Soviet uh, Russian military vehicles. And no, sorry, I don't. And if anything, I think it's okay to relieve ourselves of fully understanding all of the politics involved, you know, whether NATO um, invited this through improper expansion or whether the U.S. is doing this or that. You know, it's not just that it's too hard. It's that we don't have good enough information. We don't have good enough data. You know, it's a bit like when uh, people think that they have all the information they need to make intelligent picks on the stock market. And it's like, no, dude, the information that you're getting is like third generation information from journalists who are talking to people who are already one or two steps removed from the people who made the bets that you're trying to bet on. It's like, no, we can't. We can know that there's real people um, in real suffering. And Maybe rather than thinking that our high leverage point to affect their lives is having the right geopolitical opinion on what's been happening there since World War II, we can look at what can we do right now, even here in America where I am, in Europe, in Australia, wherever you are, what can you do to alleviate stress, to make their experience better? Well, of course, you can give money, medical supplies. You can go to uh, the organization I donate to is afyafoundation.org, A-F-Y-A foundation.org. It's uh, started by a woman, a friend of mine right here in Hastings on Hudson and Yonkers. Um, she collects medical supplies from all across the United States, gets them in shipping containers and gets them to war zones where they're needed. You know, real. It's an actual thing you can do. And there's a lot of things like that that you can actually do. What you can also do is is look at the difference between the sorts of efforts that are, are kind of silly and maybe don't make that much of a difference and the much more mundane things that do. You know, I've gotten a lot of emails this week of people with kind of major global plans, you know, ways of replacing the G20 with other things, uh, uh, proposals that they want me to try to help them get to the United Nations or to the president. You know, that, well, if nations interacted like this instead of that, then things would be good. Or, you know, <laughs> it's like, Big stuff. Or uh, a lot of NFT launches. A lot are still getting, you know, five or six people launching an NFT. And this NFT is not just a regular NFT because it's going to launch a social network or it's going to, uh, um, you know, raise Ether that's going to then go to this or that or lead to a DAO or lead to our ability to build um, eco villages over here once there's a third round of this NFT's NFT or we're going to have good governance 
when Web3 happens. So in, even though stuff in, in the real world is kind of screwy, we're going to have a metaverse where we've got really good governance and all. I mean, sure, I'm sure one out of a thousand of these is actually something positive, but these are not uh, easy on the ground ways of affecting change. And the least... <laughs> least effective way of affecting change are are angry tweets and angry Facebook posts and horrified retweets. You know, we we are all triggered by things like this. It's funny. I used to think being triggered was really specific, and now I'm starting to realize that being triggered is like really general. You know, seeing whatever uh, Putin invade another country and, and and gaslighting everybody to say, you know, oh, I'm invading this country because there's Nazis there when it's actually a, a Jewish president in a totally non-Nazi place. It, it's that kind of brutish male gaslighting dominator. It's it's the same kind of trigger as, you know, Harvey Weinstein and Bill Cosby and and Epstein and the kinds of stuff that were triggering QAnon people. It's it's I'm I'm realizing it's just one big trigger, which is getting, you know, the, the helpless being dominated by the temporarily powerful. And of course, it's upsetting. And of course, it makes us want to escape into you know, the intellectualization of great global plans or fantasies of how an NFT can change all this or just to express it all in angry and, and horrified tweets. But but what can we actually do? What can we really, really do? Well, first off, what we can do is relieve the stress on this region. So much of the stress, so much of Europe's inability to do things about this is fear about oil. So much of this is oil. Oh no, gas prices are going to go up if we do something about this. Gas prices? You know, first of all, gas is too cheap as it is. It's really not supposed to be this cheap. It's artificially cheap. The, the gas should be more expensive. If gas were more expensive, people would have to drive less. And maybe we would kind of remake our lives and our, our, our workplaces and a whole lot of other stuff around not having cars rather than in ways that force people to have cars. So use less energy, drive around less, buy less stuff, do less stuff, right? Expend less energy and start looking around at ways in your life right now that you can start unwinding this unsustainable dependence on pulses, massive pulses of burnt carbon. And I don't just mean Bitcoin, although I do mean Bitcoin. I mean, we're just talking to Cory Doctor about this. And, you know, one of his great suggestions is instead of everyone having a, a minimum viable product drill, you know, a drill that barely holds together that you're getting from slave labor, you know, over at Home Depot, what if you've got one really good drill on every block or every two blocks? And, you know, oh, Joe has the drill. It's our community drill, a good metal professional quality drill. You borrow that drill, it's going to work. It's going to drill through that that hard wood and through metal and whatever it is. Just, you know, it's like I've always said, just get one lawnmower and everybody on the block share the thing. You could have a damn nice lawnmower if you do it that way. You know, so think about ways that you can do that. Unwind, start doing favors for each other. Use less energy. Likewise, you know, reduce your own cortisol levels, your own anxiety, not by 
isolating yourself or insulating yourself from the news, but by putting yourself in a position to metabolize all this stuff. You know, we're all connected here, right? There's one big global nervous system. If we are not in imminent danger, then it's our job to do the emotional processing, right? Find your community, make your own relationships less brittle. And that will trickle up. That will trickle up through your local representatives, through your congressmen, through your, your senators and congresswomen and, and governors to be a less fearful, brittle, reactive, frightened thing. I mean, gosh, if they don't have to constantly worry about us fighting with each other about left and right and red hats and blue hats, you know, then they can look a, a, a bit more cogently and and coherently at global issues. You know, we can make our government more resilient and more nimble by reducing the stress that we put on it by learning to take care of ourselves and one another economically, physically, and emotionally. I mean, this is not rocket science. This is just being human. So to all of you here, all of you there, I'm with you. I'm thinking about you. And I'm looking at how in my own life, I can do things that hopefully in networked ways can uh, uh, reach reach you and alleviate some of the torment, some of the, uh, some of the stress and, and some of the pain. I'm really looking forward to introducing you to today's guest, Lori Siegel, who I originally met at a dinner party that was organized by Ev Williams uh, late in 2019. Lori is a former tech correspondent at CNN, who uh, right before COVID, she launched her own company, Dot Dot Dot, which is a media platform for the next generation of decentralized technology. And her book, about her experiences as a woman coming up as a journalist in the world of tech bros. It comes out this week, and it's called Special Characters, My Adventures with Text Titans and Misfits. Here's my conversation with the brilliant and always daring Lori Siegel. I'm so glad to speak with you. And I know I said I'm not going to talk about book stuff because, you know, it's not like, oh, we're not just like a stop on the tour, uh-huh. but I can't help all right. This is all right. Confession, confessional. Mm-hmm. In like some acting class, they told us to tell some lie, like to, uh-huh. to tell a lie and, and to try to hold hold your lie as long as possible, <laughs> like over weeks as a okay. way of like doing an acting exercise. Uh-huh. And the thing I had picked was that Pat Nixon had died. Patricia Nixon, uh-huh. like uh, Nick, Richard Nixon's wife. Okay. And for years, I would use that as a thing because I learned how to say Pat Nixon died. Did you hear Pat Nixon died? I learned how to say that like really without any any tell. And uh-huh. I used to use it as like this joke and stuff. And then I had this book come out and I finally gotten the Today Show. And this is back when the Today Show was still like 
it was before CNN and things and all this totally. cable. And it was like the biggest hit that you can get that or Oprah were like the biggest okay. hit O'Donohue were the biggest hits ever. And I got my Today Show hit. And the morning that I'm supposed to go on, Pat Nixon died. The real Pat Nixon died. No, and stop I'm like, it. oh my God. I lost my hit and all that. And I'm like, this is like the karma for saying it to so many people over so many years that she finally did it when my book came out. So I can't help but think that. And I know it's terrible and selfish to think this way, but you have a book coming out in the middle of a friggin' war. I mean, I... I was just thinking about it. I'm like, this is like the worst time to publish a book. And then I was like, okay, Siegel, this is also like the worst time ever for like the world and for Ukraine. So like chill out. But it is definitely not the best way to let a book come out. And it's so typical because I launched my company dot, 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 like literally a month before the pandemic. And now my book's coming out. We're going to raise money, like literally as a war is happening. It almost feels like like, I don't even know. It's just, of course. Well, of course. It's, you know, so, but it, it puts it all in perspective. But yes, yes, I'm well aware. And it's like super, you know, you want to ping people and be like, yeah, I'd love to be on your show. And then I'm like, how on earth can I ping people and be like, I'd love to be on your show in between like, you know, Russia and Ukraine stuff to talk about my like book. It is weird, you know, and exactly, because then it feels, I mean, it brings out all that kind of Jewish guilt of stuff of like, how I am mean, I caring? I mean, 100%. Right. That's exactly right. And it's like, why should I go on and talk about myself and my own story when like the world, like when this humanitarian disaster is happening and you feel so guilty and I'm like, oh, I know. I've literally, and especially as a journalist, right? Like there's nothing worse than someone pinging you during like a massive story and having no self-awareness of like the massive story happening. <laughs> so right. I'm it's like the tweet aware. that doesn't that doesn't recognize the audience. It's like it's, right. this is not the moment, <laughs> right, for some ant whatever. But there's so many aspects of that though that that are relevant to our our conversation. Which is yeah. I mean, so yeah, we're both the kind of people who and when we're kids blowing out the candle on our birthday cake, we think, <laughs> oh, Save the poor, you know, or make there be no suffering in the world. You know, the, you don't right. want to wish for something for yourself. I always think about the children starving in, in Rwanda or Biafra or somewhere, and I would that would be my wish. But the internet, the world that we live in, has has it's changed the nature of personal experience. That's right. You know, not that the Ukraine war wouldn't have been a big deal in the old days, but it wouldn't have been as present. It wouldn't be as total. We wouldn't feel, I don't think we would feel as connected to it if we didn't have 24 seven media and the internet in, in a good way. Yeah. A hundred percent and watching like the outpouring of people. Um, and, and by the way, like I'm super interested in, in, um, web three and cryptocurrency and what's happening for people to gather. And I mean, the fact that the Ukrainian government put out, um, an e- their ETH and Bitcoin address for donations and you have them raising millions and millions of dollars. I'm, I'm speaking to someone today, actually after this podcast who in, less than in 30 seconds raised a million dollars with like an NFT project for Ukrainian relief, which is like pretty extraordinary. People are creating like DAOs, which is a new type of uh, formation for um, internet group, like internet groups. Like people are raising million through millions for Ukraine through that. So it's pretty cool to see. And I mean, of course, that's going to come along with scams and stuff we have to pay sure. attention to. You know, it's like even, even, um, 
Remember when Ariana Grande did that concert in Manchester and some yes. evil people blew something up there and killed yeah. people and stuff? Mm-hmm. And it was the first time I appreciated TikTok and Instagram for real yeah. because I right. saw all the little Ariana Grande fans, you know, hundreds of thousands of them, right. you know, giving her messages and, and, and consoling each other. Totally. And, and it was like, okay, but that, and then you look at it and go, well, you know, like, like er, Twitter during Iran, that's just witnessing things, giving goodwill. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I make my team human argument for it. Oh, but that's important, the heart and all. But <laughs> now, you know, and, and I've been dissing web three, you know, since, since web two, um, uh-huh. just, you know, cause of the scams on it and the, the, yeah. the fuel charges, but here you go. You know, here, yeah. you know, people can in a decentralized way throw money right in there. It's like this. Uh, I remember when I started covering social media and like the Web 2 era and being in the newsroom at CNN, right? And like you had these incredible moments where you're like, oh, wow, this isn't just people tweeting about their lunch. This isn't just a bunch of tech bros, you know, tweeting about their days. Like the plane goes down in the Hudson and the first picture emerges from Twitter, right? These uprisings happen and we are able to follow along and people are able to connect because of Twitter. Now, Let's, you know, let's be honest, all these terrible things happen, misinformation, bots, all that kind of stuff. But it was that aha moment. So for me, I know so many folks have been really skeptical on Web3, and there's a lot of reasons for that that skeptical nature. And I think these NFT collections and whatnot, I think so many folks are like, okay, this is a bunch of folks like buying JPEGs. Well, this is like a really good example about how people can gather and raise a ton of money in a very short period. And also the Ukrainian government's on board and sees the power in this. And they're able to raise all of this money. Now on the, uh, on the downside, because we, you know, we all know there's, there's the good where there's good, there's bad. How will cryptocurrency allow, um, you know, allow folks to get around the sanctions? I think that's a question right. that's emerging. So, I mean, there's all these interesting all these interesting questions that come out of it. But I think you're right. Like we wouldn't have any idea. And and I still, maybe I'm, I'm an optimist still after all of this, that like empathy can still happen on the internet. I don't know. I get trolled all the yeah. time. So it's hard, but I'd like to yeah. think that empathy is still a thing, you know? Oh, definitely. Definitely. And the, the interesting thing about your career and, 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 you know, as I was reading your book, I, I felt my own career. You know, it was a more recent version of it. But yeah. the thing that the, the, the two elements that keep coming back in your description of your experience and my memory of mine is on the one hand, being an expert in something that you would expect other people to know about. In other words, right. when they're coming to you for like, really, what's, you know, for, for in, in the 2000s, to someone to ask you, well, what's a Google cache? I mean, I remember <laughs> yeah. when, when it was when AOL and when AOL bought Time Warner, the New York Times right. called me to be like, what just happened? Can you write an op-ed? <laughs> what, what, what is that? You know, or, or right. what, what do they mean by Explorer being a monopoly? What does that mean? Totally. And it's like, really? You got Guys don't know the very, you don't know the basics. You don't know what a motive is. You don't know. They know nothing, right? So there's that on the one hand of being like such a, a bizarre, it was weird. It's almost like being a doctor or a scientist. It's like, wait a minute. I, because compared to the technologists, I know nothing, right? But compared to the newsroom, right. That's we knew exactly everything. Right. On the one hand, there's that. But then on the other hand, I feel like a total fake. I, and, and you always talk about this fake until you make it. It's like, no, no, I felt like an expert about my subject, but a, a fake 
as like a journalist or someone who could go on TV totally. and, and pose. Oh, yeah. It's such a, a weird combination. But do you still live that? It's so funny. You just so eloquently describe my career. Like, thank you. <laughs> um, you please ghostwrite my next book. <laughs> just, you know, it's just, it's so funny. I always sat in these worlds and I considered myself a translator because it's like I would go to the higher ups and be like, hey, CNN Money should have an Instagram account. There's this thing called Instagram. And then like, I'd be talking to the Instagram founders when they're like four people at the company and be like, we should put these people on camera. Um, and I was always, and I was trying to convince folks to be like, okay, this Uber thing is going to be interesting. And people are like, what, get into a stranger's car? That's insane. Like sleep in a stranger's home for Airbnb. That's insane. And so I would go do it myself. Like I did like a whole, like I went and slept in a stranger's home for Airbnb. And we look back on these moments and we're like, duh, you know, but like that's, that's technology, right? We have the, um, we look back with perspective and it all makes sense and we connect the dots. There's like that Steve Jobs quote on it. But like, yeah. you know, at the time people think you're crazy, right? And I and I think um, that's, that's an, it's important to point that out. But you're right. Like I knew so little compared to a lot of the tech folks I interviewed, but I think the stuff I always got right and I think you were probably really similar was like the human stuff. I was always sitting across from like, I sat across from Zuckerberg and I was like, hey, this is years before this question came out. I'm like, have you thought about what it's like to be editor in chief of the internet? He's like, what? <laughs> you know? Because <laughs> you, know, right, you think through that way. And when you yeah. think through that way, I mean, we should have been investors. You would know. <laughs> no, we would, you know, we would be so much right. ri richer than we, we are now. Would. I mean, and, and I mean, and the reason why you have a career now or I do now is because if you're right enough times, I mean, then, yeah. then they stop laughing you out. But yeah, I remember right. I got... They wouldn't publish my first book on the internet. I was out pitching it in like 89, 90. Uh -huh. And I would sit in the editor's office saying, you know, someday you're going to have a computer on your desk and you're going to be using it to write letters back and forth to people. Right. It's like, never. Right. I would never do that. <laughs> I mean, my first book on the internet, it got canceled. It got canceled in 1992 Stop because it. they thought the internet, Bantam Doubleday Dell, they thought the internet would be over by 93 when the book was supposed to. They said I was too late. Too late no. to cover the net. Yep. Stop it. That's insane. <laughs> like, but but right. you know, it's to your point. I started out um, miking up guests. I created this startup beat, and then my career took off because then I became our technology correspondent. I started going on camera way before I should have. Like so many um, <laughs> correspondents at CNN, like they went to local news. They did the whole like staring into a camera and being like, right. you know what. From Pix Eleven or whatever, and like I did <laughs> right, the it. One like who got the who got the car just ran or ran her totally. over while she was backing I, up the toilet. I mean, for me, the reason I I just remember my aha moment. I was literally brushing an anchor's hair while producing for her because I wanted her to look good. You know, I was like full service. Uh -huh. You know, I'm like uh -huh. I'm like the person you want to produce for you. I'm like not gonna let anything slide. And like she had hair out of place, so I was brushing her hair and like literally describing to her how to talk about Twitter on air. And I was just like, could I just do this? Like, and and I never right. thought that because I never thought I looked like a reporter. I was like still wearing uh. Vans and had ship nail polish. And I never thought that like I could grow into that. And, and so when I did start doing it, A, I was super awkward. But B, like I felt like such a fake. Like I would be on and I'd be like, back to you, Wolf. And like, I love Wolf. Yeah. Like Bill Blitzer, for those who don't know. Like yeah. he like was like, the he's like a Jewish dad. <laughs> you know, I like Wolf a lot. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and so I always just felt to some degree, and maybe a lot of people feel like this, but like an imposter. I just didn't fit in any world. Well, the interesting thing, though, is the, the from my perspective, mm -hmm. 
the reason why you feel fake saying something like, and back to you, Wolf, is because that's such the crappiest part. I mean, that's what right. Neil Postman was writing about and amusing ourselves to death, that that the news had become a show. So yeah. where you felt like a fake was the parts that were fake. That's exactly know? right. That's exactly right. And, you know, like my aha moment was when I like I pitched a show to Jeff Zucker because he was my mentor and I was pitching a show to him called Mostly Human and it was all about like the dark things. Like, I mean, give Lori uh-huh. a show and like we're going to cover like depression and like and, you know, love through the lens of like AI and robots and like uh-huh. all sorts of weird stuff. Um, and, you know, I was out there interviewing like a woman in love with like a robot that she created. But, you know, I I didn't look at her as crazy. I looked at her as so human because I remember her saying to me, well, humans are complicated. They lie. They cheat. Like, they're going to hurt you. And I was like, oh, that is so true. You know, like, mm-hmm. and there was like so much humanity in the stuff that she was doing. And and I just, I always looked at things like from that that human perspective. And that felt real to me. Like, you know, sitting down with people who are suffering and, and in real pain and going through things and just through that lens of technology, that helped me. I mean, I think that was my superpower of understanding where things were going to go in technology. You know, I think it was because I had a better understanding of humans, probably because I'm like, you know, sometimes way too human. I'm, by the way, I'm like scared for the book to come out. I'm like, did I say too much? Like, you <laughs> probably, know, but, but that's a good thing. You know? <laughs> thanks. thanks. <laughs> so the answer is yes. Um, but, you know, I know I'm like, I'm like, do I come across as like too, to me? Um, but, you know, but I, I do think like that's so I- important. And I, and it was really the stark contrast and it was a turning point for me because, you know, even cable news changed so much. Like, because me, it was like, as I was there and as I was at CNN, like it was, um, it was more panels and more talking heads and more opinions. And we were entering the Trump era where like Trump, Trump, Trump. I used to have this joke about, I kept getting killed for Trump. Like that means like killed from air, like your segment gets killed from air and less like going out and interviewing people and putting it on TV and more like, what's your opinion on this? And I was just like, I don't, I, I want to talk to other people and I want to do nuanced reporting and, and nuance went missing. And so I think for me, it was a turning point, but I, I did. I think that that realness is hard to do in two minute chunks and, and this new kind of age of cable news, you know? Yeah. And it's weird because they make it, they make it seem as if having more opinion, just these sort of talking head, shoot from the hip, kind of opinion as if that's more human but right. it's it's actually not it's one thin narrow sort of almost lizard brain human totally. you know the impulsive responses when it's factless then yeah. you don't get anything dimensional and, <laughs> it's and, just... it's, and it's optimized for uh engagement right it's optimized right. for tweets and retweets and whatnot and um and i don't think i knew where i fit in that either you know and i think in you know even in the book you like see me kind of go through this like existential crisis which like I'm, I'm a neurotic Jew. Like I go through those like on a daily basis. Right. So, I mean, just if the day ends and why I'm probably going through one, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I, I totally agree. So it was, I watched as like, I covered tech disruption and then I watched as it changed my industry too, which was difficult to, to grasp right. what was frustrating to me when I started out um, covering tech, which is like the web two, right? Like 2009, 2010, it's like you had the iPhone had come out, the app store had launched and this new generation of mobile social had come out and, and it was such an exciting era. And I had never quite felt like I, I don't know, weirdly I felt like I'm, I'm, 
I seemed like I would fit it like everywhere, but like I always felt like a little bit of like a misfit. Like I was the only Jewish girl at my like very conservative Southern Christian school. Then I went to Michigan and like all the Long Island Jews, like I also didn't relate to in a weird way because I was like Southern. And so I was like, uh, where's my home? You know, right. I mean, like, by the way, woe is me. Like these are not terrible, yeah. terrible things. Like, let me just be a little self-aware here. Um, but I found a home with like the weirdo tech people. Like I found a a home with like these creative out of box, the box thinkers that like we were coming out of the recession and like, and it wasn't like so cool to go to wall street. And I think for me, like sitting at, Tom and Jerry's like downtown in New York, like where everybody like drink way too much whiskey. They had this drink called the, the bee stinger, which like I had way too many of in my early twenties. <laughs> I'm surprised I'm still standing. Um, you know, I just like, and listening to people's ideas and like, there was this like, kind of like screw you mentality, like, um, that I loved. Like I loved like punk mm. rock when I was younger and, and they were like young and punk rock and they didn't believe you had to do things because they were done a certain way. And I fell in love with that community. Mm. And so I think for me, it was interesting watching so many of them change. And as like the money got, you know, more relevant and as they sold their companies for hundreds of millions <laughs> or millions, yeah. you know? Um, and for me, I, I just like, I didn't really relate as much. Obviously I did yeah. not sell, I did not sell my journalism career for hundreds of millions, but, um, it felt like a more, it's like they became the, the sharks became, or the minnows became the sharks. Like they became it the is man. Interesting. You know, and that was a thing. Cause I, I agree, you know, it was punk rock, cyberpunk even was, you yeah, know, my era. Loved, and, totally. and, I remember I I kind of forgave a lot of them because, I mean, they were hackers working in their garages. Their parents, if you, in the 90s, if you told your parents you were going into the tech or computer industry, they wept for you. They (laughs) thought you were saying that you're going to go work for Dungeons and Dragons or something. It was like a weird, (laughs) I'm going to make CB radios for my job. It's like, what? It was was nuts. And so by the end of the 90s, when there were actual companies like Sequoia giving money to you for your little thing, it was like, okay, mommy and daddy understand that what I'm doing has value, right? Totally. But, But by the 2000s, the late 2000s, those I feel like those people that that Zuck and Ev and all of these people, they should have known better that that if you really want to disrupt something, disrupt the underlying operating system. Why, as soon as you have your new tech, you're going to run to Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs and say, oh, give me a billion dollars right. now. <laughs> right. 100%. 100%. And it kills the company. It kills yeah. what you can do. It's what makes a Facebook vulnerable to a Cambridge Analytica. They're helpless at that point. That's right. It's like all these incentives get messed up and like the the model for it gets messed up. And like we've seen that over and over again, which I wonder, you know, the criticism, like, okay, the, the idea um, that we're entering this new era of the internet that will be much more immersive is interesting to me. I know there's a lot of skepticism around Web3. I believe that the form it's in now won't be the form it will end up being, but I do believe right. it's, it's going to happen and it's going to happen in a really interesting way. This idea like, you know, that we have more ownership over our identities. Um, I don't believe we're going to have like full decentralization. I think that's way too optimistic. Um, but this idea that you could own a piece of the internet to some degree, that digital ownership uh, is a thing. I think that's a pretty disruptive idea um, that our children are going to grow up 
spending time in these virtual spaces and having jobs we didn't even know exist. Like they're spending, I think the Roblox numbers were up like 98% in a year or something. That's crazy. And and so I think it's going to happen, right? And some iteration of this is going to happen. But I just sit here and I'm like, okay, so this is exciting. And, and the whole idea is that we have these people who are building out these companies who are a little punk rock, who are very different. And then I'm like, wait a second, you have a lot of big VCs who are beginning to go all crypto. And so wait, this feels a little more like Web2 and they're investing millions and millions and billions of dollars into this. That feels like the same thing that mm. happened before. And, and then wait, wait a second, is there mainly men building out these companies? So there's not a lot of diversity. Like, you know, there's this is super inside baseball, but there's like a virtual real estate boom happening where people are buying like millions, I think like 300 million in virtual real estate for the game Sandbox. And it's mostly men buying it. So it's like the Wild West. And I'm like, yeah. okay, so once again, we're painting this utopian version of the future. But if you kind of dig into it, it's like already turning dystopian and no one's talking about it. You know, so right. I, it's I don't know. dystopian yes. Right. I mean, the, the distribution of wealth in crypto is worse than the distribution of wealth. That's right. In real life. It's like six That's people right. own ninety percent of the all you know, all yeah. of the crypto. And yeah. then you know, or you know, the equivalent. And then then you look at all the other activity on top of it that we kind of want to like, like NFTs yeah. and artists making money. And yeah. the the bulk of the money being made is from the people underlying. They want you right. to do NFT activity so they get to mine more transactions and they make yeah. more money with their currency. But, but then you have this moment, right? Then you have this moment where like someone does an NFT drop and raises a million dollars for Ukraine in 30 right. seconds, right? So then you have these moments where you're like, oh, wait, I see. I see what it could be, you know? So like, I don't know. I'm, um, I could go both ways, right? I think yeah. that there is something in it that could really be interesting. And, um, and, and as there a way, is. you know, like, because musicians don't make much at all from Spotify and, and journalists, like, you know, like I, I've, uh, before we launched this network, like for web three, right? Like we own a production company and you sell a show to Netflix, you make nothing, you know? And so if there's a model coming that could help with that or that could, um, you know, that could provide incentives to make that better for creators, I'm all for it. But you just have to look at the other side of it, you know? And, and by the way, the thing I think both of us probably um, recognized earlier in our careers is like, people don't look beyond the excitement and the boom and the utopian version. And so, you know, and, and there's not enough diversity in the, in the room to be like, have we thought about this? You know? And, and so I don't know, it's like that move fast and break things like sign that forever haunted Facebook, you know? <laughs> yeah. And it is interesting. I mean, as, as a woman in tech, you probably saw it and felt it faster than someone yeah. like me, but boy, the the and I hate to use the term, you know, white tech bro, but <laughs> there is a white tech bro uh, mindset that dominates the the whole thing. It's really hard. I mean, now I mean, people are kind of seeing it. They just did that uh, HBO movie on the Uber guy, so yeah. it's kind of you know showing the extreme version totally of, uh, of that. Totally, but I don't know the the. I feel like the tech bros were were really happy running everything. And then the election of Trump kind yeah. of shook the tech bros to think, oh, wait a minute. 
Yeah. <laughs> We're doing something wrong here. Yeah. Oh my God. I remember when I, I was, so I was in Lisbon when that happened, like, which was weird to be away from like the United States when something as monumental as that election was happening. But I was there for Web Summit, which I'm sure you've, you've yeah. either been to or heard of, um, which is a huge tech conference in, in Europe. And I was interviewing like a bunch of tech people on stage. And I just remember being in the backstage area with like, I mean, actually Joseph Gordon-Levitt was there from who the one who played. Travis Kalanick and, uh-huh. and Super Pumped, which just came out. Um, but, you know, I just remember walking by this entrepreneur who was like, you know, drinking like the premium coffee in the VIP area. And he's like, did we do this? And I wanted to be like, yeah, you you probably, um, you probably like did impact some of these things, you know, but there was, you know, this, this, it was like this moment for technology where they're like, whoa, like some of the things we did really did impact, you know, the, the election. But I haven't found that there's like so much awareness, you know, I think that was like a moment, you know, I think now there's this, um, feeling that the media is too hard on tech for, I know from inside of the tech world, oh, they, they think the backlash, that like, backlash. yeah, so it, like <laughs> there are all these different phases, right? So first it's utopian, rah, 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 like maybe the media was too easy on tech. And then it was like, tech is like, oh God, like, what do we do? And then it was like, okay, we've gotten too much backlash. So I think those are the phases of like self-actualization from the tech community, which is super interesting to hear. Um, and by the way, maybe there isn't enough nuance in, in some of the tech coverage, but also like maybe there wasn't enough things thinking going into some of these issues too. I remember um, the turning point for me, there were a couple turning points. Um, One of those turning points was when I interviewed Travis Kalanick, the um, founder of Uber. And I had kind of been his go-to for CNN every time he had Uber news. Um, I was probably Uh one of the first to put him on camera. And he had come in to announce a... um, a partnership with Amex, like an Uber, which is like, you know how that goes. Like, okay, you you announce this partnership with us, but like, we're not just there to like be your PR arm. We're going to ask you real questions as well. (laughs) And I think like, like, it's like, if you want to do a PR thing, just create your own video and put it out on your site. Right. Um, And I remember sitting there in the newsroom with him and it was like the month that like, so Uber had a safety issue, like multiple women had been attacked in Ubers and, um, and they had just had like a multi-billion dollar valuation. And so I asked him about it. And like, I literally, he looked at me and he was like, Lori. And I was like, wait, what? You know, like I was super <laughs> confused. I like remember looking at my producer who was like sitting behind the camera. She always like looks behind the camera. Her eyes were wide. We like, n- <laughs> neither of us knew what was happening. He was like, Lori. I'm like, what is happening? That's I was not like, what we're here for. And he literally was like, I didn't know this was that kind of interview. And I'm like, where I ask you like questions about your business, like you guys are more valuable than like many Fortune 500 companies. And he literally started taking off his mic to leave. And I was just like, and he didn't, he put it back on. I think his PR person was having heart palpitations. Right. Because that all goes on the air, right? Yeah. And so like, and it was just this moment where I was like, really the entitlement of someone who doesn't believe that they have to answer real questions about their business as their business becomes like one of the most valuable businesses like here. And and I just, it really shook me. I I know that's like... it was just shook me because I'm like, I'm not here to be your mouthpiece. And and these are important questions for for a company of this size. And so it was just like such a weird moment yeah. where I was like, And it gets Whoa. to an interesting question for, for you as a journalist, though. I mean, I'm 
I'm lucky in that I'm not really a journalist, so I can mm-hmm. burn a bridge and kind of move on. Yeah. So, you know, I'll write a book like this this book I just wrote. It, it comes out in September. It's like really mean to a lot of these <laughs> uh, tech founders. They'll never talk to me again, but whatever. I'm right. old, you know. I could just do <laughs> I'll do puppet shows. I'll I'll move on. That's but <laughs> I'll come to your puppet show. I would love to see oh, you do yeah, a puppet excellent. show. I know. I'll tell you about tech. My tickets. It's about yeah. tech with hand puppets. I was I I've got it. this great idea. It's gonna be good. But you gotta attend live. Live. It's not on YouTube or I'm anywhere. In. Live puppet shows. I love um, it. That's what the world is. Mi- that's going to solve everything. <laughs> that I promise you. That is true you. disruption. <laughs> it is. It is. You'll see. You'll see. You were here when I said it. Live puppet shows save <laughs> the world. You heard it first. This just <laughs> in. Exactly. But when you're when you're talking to someone and you want to ask those questions, do you get concerned about your future access to that person and other tech? founders if you are a good journalist? There's always this balance, right? Um, but I I always, I think, balanced it well. Like I didn't, I wasn't gotcha. I wasn't unfair, you know? Um, and I, I thought I always asked important questions. I never got an interview with Travis after that. Huh. Um, that was it. And I mean, Travis is out of Uber. So, I mean, you do the math. I feel like those yeah. were some real <laughs> fundamental issues with it. But I did get an interview yeah. with Dara and I was like, and I told him about that. Dara's the new CEO of Uber. Um, but yeah, you always have to um, do that, balance that line. But I also think you gain a lot of respect by asking important questions and doing it in a way that, you know, I think that was always how I liked, I always like to ask questions in a certain way. Um, and, and not in a way of like, gotcha, but in a way of really trying to put the human element first. Like even when I asked Zuckerberg questions of like, are you doing something, are you doing something your daughters can be proud of? That was like my favorite moment of your career, you know, because it was just like, that was to me, that was the Rushkoff question of like, come around. All right. He's not, he's not human. He's not being human. He's not human. How can you do an end run around his whole tech bro mindset? And it's like, his children. Children. I'll go in. Children. You know, the thing is, the thing is, Rushkoff, that there are two things I do. These are my secrets. Are you ready for them to your okay. listeners? Yeah. Children and moments of silence. So it's like you bring up the children. And I don't mean this in like a gotcha way. I just feel like right. our children humanize us, you know? Like, and and I think I was sitting to that point, like I was sitting with him during Cambridge Analytica, like interviewing him at this, like this pivotal moment for the company was so stressful. It was the moment that like the whole world turned on Facebook, even like uh-huh. my mom who doesn't have Facebook cared. Um, and so that's like a moment, you know, and he had been so, he'd been really scripted and, and it was super tense. And, um, and then the last question I asked him, and by the way, we were like blasted past our time and the PR people were like, this has to end, you know? But I said to him, like, are you, um, are you building something that your daughters or your your children would be proud of? And I, he started tearing up. And I'm like, oh, my God. Like, you know, <laughs> and it was this this real moment um, of humanity. And and I'm you feel however you want about Mark Zuckerberg, but it was a real moment. And I think real moments are important when you see these people who have created these products that have transformed um, the the universe. And, and I think we don't um, really see it. You know, I just interviewed Chris Dixon and I asked him, I was like, you know, he's on the Midas list now. And I just said, like, you know, when you fly so close to the sun, how do you, how do you like stay connected to earth? 
you know, mm. like it's like you want to build out this whole new world, but you're not a part of like the earth anymore. You know, you're, you're in these, you know, and so it's like, that's how I ask these questions. And that could have been like, you're disconnected from society. So like, why are you the one to build it? I could have asked it like that, which is not right. how I like to ask these questions. I like to ask them with a fair bit of um, humanity, because I think that's an easier way for people to not feel like they're attacked and also be able to give a real answer. Um, and I think those answers are important and telling about people. And then I think the other thing that I learned early on, someone, by the way, I will take no credit for this. Someone told me about this, um, is the long pause. You know, um, they were like, Lori, if you ask a harder question and the person doesn't answer immediately and there's silence, never fill the silence. And it was the best bit of advice anyone ever gave me because, you know, I've gotten some of the best answers by just sitting there silently, which is super uncomfortable. But you ask a question and if someone's taking a second and it's super weird, you just sit silently. And then I find like some of the best stuff comes from that. You know, someone wants to fill the silence, but they end up coming out with something really real and genuine out of discomfort. Yeah. And it's interesting because, because I mean, I've learned to be comfortable with silence on the other side. So if I'll do a talk, then there's Q&A afterwards and someone asks a really hard question, I have no problem just stopping right. and thinking. <laughs> and to the point where like the host or whatever be, are you okay? Or say, I'm thinking, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking it's a good question. I'm thinking. I love how like you comfortable know? you are with that. I would like be like, I'd be like, I would just try to like, you know, actually my way of doing that is I just talk and talk and talk and say nothing until I actually figure out what I want to say. And then I go for yeah, it. Yeah, I know that one too. The, the peak moment of that for me was uh, I had done this talk in Germany for these um, economists and I was talking about, you know, how the banking system doesn't work and central currency and all this stuff. And then one of these like banker guys gets up and says, Mr. Rushkoff, what is your background? You know, as if, and so I turn around and I look behind me, I go, blue. <laughs> 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 it's just like that's fuck amazing. You, buddy. That's but amazing. Th that was when I. That was the moment because my heart's pounding. My right. butt is even squeezing. Yeah, I'm like yeah. so scared, you know, in front of. And I'm like, wait a minute. I'm a cyberpunk. I could do whatever I want. And, you know, when you flip it to that, I mean, it's probably how the tech bros think about it. I'm so cool. You can't touch totally. me. <laughs> but, totally. Uh, but to get a little of that off them, you know, isn't isn't gonna hurt. The other thing that's 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 interesting is trying to stake out a beat that is, it's so hard when you're writing about tech, they think you're going to write or, or do pieces about like how to set up your browser, yeah, you know, or what's the best 10 modems. And he's like, yeah, yeah, tech, not that tech. I mean, I want to, I want to write and do things on how tech is changing what it means to be human. And in your, in your, in the, the scene I'm going to give it away, but people know you're not at CNN anymore. So at the end of the book, when you quit CNN, which is like such a weird thing to do, you know, as a journalist up and totally. coming to interview, what do you want? Do you want a show? You want prime time? You want this? <laughs> and you're like, no, actually, I need to graduate, you know. But yeah. you say in that scene, you say, I wanted him to understand what I'd been saying, that technology had become humanity, that we needed empathy, that we needed an authentic voice to cover the movement. I mean, there's so much packed into that that little sentence. But for me, it's that, that tech had become humanity or that, which basically means that, that, that humans and technology had, had so yes. intertwined. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that was my thesis, right? And, and I, um, that was my thesis long before I remember, um, pitching my own show to Jeff Zucker. And I, I, um, 
And and I pitched it to him on a PowerPoint and I had a slide that said tech is love, <laughs> death, politics, like and I had a bunch of other, you know, a bunch of other words and I said tech is mostly human. And I think by the time I left, I just said like tech is humanity. Like we are one and the same, like it shapes every part of us and and we shape technology. And so, you know, for us to not understand that is for us to not to not really be doing our jobs right. And for people who are creating technology to not understand that, it's for them to not be doing their jobs right. Um, and I think that we we don't take that approach and we don't have that understanding. Um, and I never wanted to write about modems. And by the way, if I'm writing about modems, please don't read it because I'm probably not <laughs> the best person to do that. Um, but I do understand, I do have a better understanding of humans. Um, maybe as someone mm. who felt like an outsider, like I always, I always kind of, I'm an observer and I've always been curious and, and I do have, think I have a lot of empathy sometimes for better and for worse. Right. But, um, I think that is correct. And even as we enter this new generation of the web, I can't stop thinking about the human impact of all of these things. And I remember him saying, you want to be Kara Swisher. And like, I, I like Kara a lot, but I was, I was like, no, I want to be me. I want to be Laurie Siegel, you know? And, and it's, um, God, I, I think back to that. I'm like, and I'm like really proud of myself for quitting my job, you know, because at the time it was so terrifying and my God did things open up once I left. But like, again, that's one of those perspective moves and it was really yeah. scary, but it was nice to have, um, to believe so fiercely that tech is humanity and that, you know, and that we have to cover it with that same type of authenticity and with voice. So, yeah. Right. And that feedback loop, I mean, it's funny because I, I, came to realize it the same way you did through experience and looking at things and yeah. telling stories and covering things. And as I came to really understand that, okay, hum human beings make a technology, but then after that, the technology kind of starts remaking the people. That's that there's exactly this feedback right. loop, this cybernetic. And then that is what turned me. That's why I then spent 10 years like becoming, getting a PhD in this. I was like, okay, who knew this? And read like John Culkin said, we make our, we make our technologies. And after that, they make us, you know, or McLuhan yeah. talking about medium and the message and really what he's looking about at is how is the medium itself yeah. changing who we are? And then we then make the next medium. And, and it became, it became kind of really important to get that to get that rigor to do the reading. I mean, do you do you look at stuff? Do you look at media theory and social theorists and stuff like that? Or are you just really on the ground most for the I most mean, part? I mean, I yeah, look, I I I read a lot of these types of things and I have certain people I'd like to follow. I mean, God, like I've followed your work for for years uh, even. But but you know, honestly, a part of it is like I'm in, I roll up my sleeves and I am in there. Like I, uh -huh. I went to um, Black Hat and DEF CON, these hacker conferences way before a lot, I think, you know, not way before, but before a lot of mainstream media was going. And I was going to hacker parties with like anonymous and they were teaching me how to pick locks. Like, by the way, watch I out, Rush Gov, watch out, you know. At every Black Hat conference, it's like, a, or you go to DEF CON, and then there's yeah. that session on lockpicking totally, and those tables totally. where they let you pick your own locks. Totally. It's like, oh, I, mean, I get it. This is a culture. Right. Totally. That's it. Yeah. Like, I think I always try to embed myself in these different cultures and really embed myself and understand mm. um, with, with a non-judgmental look. And so it really helped me when I was like, 
coming out to translate that world, why this was too simplified. Like hackers are bad. No, like hackers right. aren't bad. Hacker is a term that, you know, there's They don't even play. know what hackers are. Yeah, like They think hackers are people that want to steal their money. It's like, that's not a hacker. No, it's like right. there's black hat, there's yeah. white hat, there's gray. Like there are all these different incentives. And if we don't understand, and, and so I think I've always, even like, <laughs> hopefully this doesn't get me canceled, but like yeah. even like I looked at, um, ISIS for a while and, and how people got, um, you know, really, uh, you know, radicalized. And, and I realized that ISIS and how the internet, what it played and you know, and this is like the role that the internet played in the recruitment of folks into ISIS. And I, I literally, it took me down a rabbit hole of like interviewing rappers, um, who are singing uh-huh. songs that like a lot of like ISIS members really loved. I like literally went to London and spent some time with like a guy named Tabernacle. <laughs> Who was like, uh, who was like a rapper that like um, Janaid Hussein, who was like the first hacker to be killed in a drone strike, who he really liked. I went to his home. I went. He he knew a lot of hackers. I interviewed a lot of the hackers that used to hang out with him and like these like really chat rooms. And I learned that like ISIS really took the punk rock approach, right? That they went after disenfranchised folks by like really doing this in a punk rock way. And I was, you know, I was on Telegram, like potentially talking with members of ISIS. So it's just like- And they set up the model for Steve Bannon to go after the yeah. uh, Gamergate kids. You know, totally. that was what you do. And by the way, what's so interesting is I started seeing like so many of these patterns that I saw in ISIS and recruitment in like modern day politics here in the United States, right? Even with like domestic terrorism and neo-Nazis. And I interviewed a guy from uh, Adam Waffen, which is like one of the most dangerous neo-Nazi groups they've been categorized as domestic terrorists. And like the recruitment tactics were one and the same of like kind of punk rock disenfranchised, like, you know, and so I think for me, you know, I embedded with some folks from QAnon and I just think like our approach to even covering QAnon was so just like one dimensional and like, you know, I I think about why they hate the media and I'm like, of course they hate the media. Like, uh, like, you know, people sitting in their like second homes during the um, the pandemic, like judging conspiracy theorists and like, you know, and they couldn't be more privileged and judgmental and they haven't spent time with these people. And then you go with these people. And we later learned that on Facebook, this is through the Facebook papers that Francis Haugen put out, like you click on like one thing for conservative, like, like Trump you click on and like seven days later, you're given QAnon material. You have people who have lost their jobs, who can't go back to work, who are veterans who haven't been taken care of, who find community online, who don't believe what their politicians are saying. The next thing you they're QAnon, you know? And so I, I'm not making excuses as much as I'm saying like, you know, getting, rolling up my sleeves and spending time in these communities. And I've been to some weird places. Like I was on a compound with like goats and guns and talk of pedophiles. And like, you talk to these people and you realize there's much more to the story. Um, And so I think that's where I get this. And if you cover it, you cover it from a human perspective without judgment and you start to understand the QAnon mythology, even if it's mythology, and even if it's partly based on protocols of elders of Zion that they don't really know about, it's still an apt metaphor for life under neoliberal paternalism, right? That they're 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 fucking you in the ass at the same time yeah. that they're telling you to be grateful for it and that it's not really happening. Totally. You know, that is child abuse, right? <laughs> That's yeah. basically the way it works. <laughs> and you're in, so we're in this weird illicit relationship, and it's it's 
I understand what yeah. they're saying. And then they're scared that someone's going to take down Mount Rushmore, which they've been trained their whole lives to, you know, worship these people that are now being called bad. And they're yeah. confused, you know? So I, I understand. Or the coal worker. You know, I always talk about the coal worker who's been living in a town on the on land that they dig up to make money. That's what they do. And now they're being told by Hillary Clinton to retrain and make solar panels for China or, you know, yeah. it's just, I understand they're alienated. You just have to understand it from a different standpoint and look right. at yourself. And it involves like, it involves looking at yourself, which I don't think a lot of people want to do. And and I also think when everything yeah. is shortened and tweeted and put out and, you know, I saw some of the coverage, um, I mean, for even for CNN of like folks kind of going out and listening to people say crazy things and kind of like putting a mic in their face and then it gets retweeted and retweeted and then everyone's like shocked and horrified and calls them terrorists. And I'm like, this isn't how we make change in our society. It's harder to embed in a decentralized web movement because totally. they're just everyone's in an individual computer somewhere. But it gets me to I, I guess it's a good ending point for this, actually, when. You know, when I've spoken at like journalism schools and stuff, yeah. it, a, a lot of times the students will ask me, so how do you get started? Where do you go for your first job? What do I yeah. do? And I always tell them, you know, that it's not about finding a job. It's about finding a beat, right? Yeah, finding the thing that you, that you my care God. about. And for me, the way I found my beats was I was looking at, I wanted to do double duty because I just gotten through college and grad school and was so tired. I wanted to find the people who were having the most fun. Yeah. <laughs> on the planet, right? And whoever that is, that's going to be a good beat, right? I mean, literally so, the best advice ever. I love that. <laughs> so I went I went to San Francisco in the early 90s and covered yeah. the rave, psychedelic, you know, virtual reality. <laughs> totally. Who was having the most fun? So now, you know, and, and it looks like that's so much of what you did too. You found, where's the excitement? Where's the sexiness? Where's, yeah. you know, where's that story? Where's, I mean, and for you, fun is was deeper than for me. For me, it was like, who's taking the best drugs? For you, it was, it's more who's most central to the new unfolding of humanity. Yeah. Who's at yeah. the who's at the at the at the edge of human evolution, but who who do you feel is is, and I I, I don't see them in Web three quite yet, but but because they seem to be mostly like stock traders with Bloomberg terminals. A lot of millennials are just yeah. trading crypto futures. Right. But who do you think is having the most fun right now? Where's the <laughs> the kind of the coolest funnest you know, beat right now. I mean, I gotta say, like, I think a lot of people, um, I think it's emerging in Web3. I think there are a lot of problems, but like, I, you know, I just interviewed the CEO of Board Yacht, uh, Board Ape Yacht Club, um, which is like the best known um, NFT project. And they're like about to be valued at like billions of dollars. Ugh. And, you know, she's talking about like, their their thing that they do, like where everyone gets together in person. She's like, and it's great. We have like Chris Rock next to teachers who own the NFT. And, you know, I think in the future, NFTs will be more valuable because there'll be like membership passes to like exclusive events where people come together. And so I think people are having a lot of fun in that community. And I think like with some of the right projects, people are going to be getting together, getting together in real life and I think it's like going to be at the beginning of a movement. Like I spent time with Beeple, like the artist who's like totally crazy and and interesting and just sold a piece of like his first an and NFT rich. for like 69 million. <laughs> and by the way, it's so funny because he's like, I, I was with him like a week after he became super rich and he like still was in his like home and, you know, and um, North Carolina and like it was like still like a normal home. And I was like, God, your home's normal. And he's like, 
And he like totally made fun of me for saying that. But I think it's like kind of an exciting time. And I get excited in the way I got excited about startups. So I think whoever takes on this beat, and by the way, I still think it's also the Bloomberg bros, like with the, you know, with the terminals and all that kind of stuff. I think if you can- So much money in it, yeah. I mean, I just interviewed an artist named People Pleaser who like was jobless a year ago. She couldn't get a job. And like, she now has a DAO in her name that's worth like $20 billion or something. And she's like, and she's doing all this art for all these different projects and digital art and selling it as NFTs. And like, she's also, and I love this because I interviewed her, she's like a normal human. And it's that moment that was so special to me in 2009 where people were still normal, you know, people Mm. were a little bit artsy and weird and interesting. And so I think if you can get past the bullshit, right. And if you can get past that and you can look at the interesting things happening, Oh my God, I just interviewed this other artist, like this female who like this badass woman who like was in outside of San Francisco, who's like creating this coolest art. Like there's creativity and there's art and there's this like punk rock mentality and then there's the and, right? And there's still that bro culture and there are a lot of problems associated with. But it reminds me back of 2009 when I first started covering it. It's it's different because there's tons of money already in it. Um, but if you hit it at the right time and you get in there early, like you have a real opportunity. So I would say, I would say it's there somewhere. And maybe it'll be the opposite. You know, the thing that always bummed me out about the internet scenes I was a part of is they were cool, then money came and screwed them up. So if this one starts as money, maybe cool people come and and screw that up. Right, right, right. (laughs) Who knows? By the way, and it's like anyone's, it can go any direction right now, you know? And that's why I'm like, okay, we really need to get like some amazing people in this to make sure it goes in the right direction. Because I'd like to say I'm still an optimist. Right. And that's what what makes your journalism, I mean, whether or not you want to admit it publicly, is a form of activism. Because you're trying to tell stories in a way that engenders the most human response and engagement. That's right. I I would say um, you're right about that. And I I don't need to, now that I'm like not at uh, like 60 or or CNN, I feel like I can say that. I I have an agenda. My agenda is making the world um, better for everyone. And um, you know, so like, you know, I mean, if there are, there have been worse agendas in media. I'll yeah. tell you that much. You know, and as a, as as COVID goes away, can dot 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 come back oh, into the yeah. streets? Oh yeah, Do you I have mean, plans so we, that you can talk about. Oh yeah, I mean, God, I'm so excited. We so we just launched kind of the next generation of dot 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 because we were operating as a production company and selling shows and podcasts, but now we just launched D three. So it's like dot 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 D three, which is like a network for D3 where we get to put out our own content and we're creating like a web three media company. We're going to put out an NFT membership pass as like a modern day subscription. Wow. Um, and we'll also have normal subscriptions. We don't want to have a, the traditional advertising model. We're interviewing all the big players in the web three space. We just interviewed, I, as I mentioned, like the board Ape yacht club CEO, we just interviewed Chris Dixon. We have all these interviews. I, we have that interview with people pleaser, that artist I just mentioned coming out. And there's something beautiful about getting to create my own network with my own voice, um, hiring other writers around me and other people around me who I believe represent this next generation of the internet and being a place that um, everybody can come to and understand why this matters. And so I've never been more excited about what we're doing. 
And it's the original internet dream that with a few thousand dollars of equipment, Mm -hmm. you have the same abilities that CBS had in 1979. Totally. Totally. And I mean, the people who are supporting us, we have like extraordinary support. I'm lucky that I get to take every lesson I learned from the last decade of sitting in front of some of the most powerful people and apply it to my own own world. So I, I consider myself both neurotic and lucky. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> which is an excellent combination yeah. it sounds very very human yeah well thanks so much for being on team human yeah this is so fun and thank you for being on team human our guest today was journalist and founder of dot 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 media as well as author of the brand new memoir special characters my adventures with text titans and misfits Lori siegel Team Human is produced by Joshua Chaptelin and engineered by Luke Robert Mason. Special shout out to our friends at Crazy Town and the Post Carbon Institute, where I was just on their podcast and had an awful lot of fun. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.